Good morning, and uh, I'm Tom Nelson, and I have the great joy of serving on our staff. Uh, welcome to the Leewood campus on this beautiful Mother's Day. Well, you probably guessed this about pastors, but we're kind of crazy sometimes, and uh, sometimes we have lots of quirks. Um, one of my quirks is birthdays. Um, let's just say I don't like celebrating my birthday. But one of the quirks is, I love celebrating other people's birthdays, especially when it's a surprise birthday. Recently, a dear friend of mine wanted to surprise his wife for a very special birthday. I won't say the number. Um, and wanted to make it a special surprise. And he really did it. I was amazed that he did it. I was invited, along with several people, to uh, show up at their house. You know, this is when lying is permitted. <laughs> you know, a husband sort of diverted his wife to another place while we all kind of came in, got in the lower level of their house, and we waited for the moment of deception. <laughs> and so we're all in there all excited about the birthday and celebrating her life and her big birthday, and sure enough, we hear the door open upstairs. And the goes, shh, please, quiet, quiet, quiet. And we were waiting. He kept thinking, when is she going to come down? You know, and finally, I think, he asked her to do something or figure out some way to get her to go downstairs to get something. And she walks down the stairs. You know what happens. The legs went, surprise! And it was like, it was so amazing. She was like, whoa! You could just see this beam on her face. Because she was totally surprised. I mean, it was amazing. She was just freaking out with joy. But what really got me the most as she scanned the crowd was there was her father who came from Florida to surprise her. And uh, she let out this amazing scream of joy and ran to her dad and hugged him and tears of joy. And her husband just beamed. And all of us beamed because joy just filled the place. Because there's something about joy, especially when we're surprised by joy, that is some of life's most delightful experiences. C.S. Lewis, who was a part of Oxford was an atheist for much of his life and who was converted to faith in Jesus Christ. Described the uniqueness of joy in the Christian faith. And he said this, the joy is the business of heaven. I like that. But sometimes the joy of heaven comes to earth. Sometimes we experience an appetizer of joy. Now, most of us have experienced in different ways, right? I mean, Sometimes that moment of joy <laughs> grabs us when, on an ordinary day, fresh-cut flowers are delivered to our door. You ever had that? Or kids, when you were away on summer camp, and you didn't write or email or text as much as you should, <laughs> you come home and there's a new puppy waiting for you. Now, it doesn't get any better than that. Joy often accompanies itself when we're surprisingly visited by a loved one. I see this because I'm traveling more than I ever wanted to these days, and I'm often in airplanes and in airports, and one of the things I love is a fellow passenger who gets off ahead of me, you know, and we're all just trying to get out of there, and as they make their way through security, there's a whole bunch of people going, surprise, welcome, and there's hugs and amazing joy that fills an airport. Surprising visits sometimes bring us great delight. Can you imagine the kind of delight and joy if God came 
and surprised you with a visit? What if God surprised you with a visit? What would that be like? Well, the text we're looking at this morning gives us an amazing literary snapshot of what it's like for a people to be surprisingly visited by God. As a congregation, we are going through the book of Nehemiah. This is our fourth message in three messages. And if you've been a part or you're just visiting today, know that we are exploring this wonderful book called Nehemiah. Nehemiah's inspired pen gives us this picture of what it's like. Can you imagine what it's like when God visits his people in a surprising way? Well, yes, God is omnipresent, but there are times when God visits his people or visits your life and mine or your family and mine in a surprising way. Now, we've seen in the story that God is up to a lot of things in the book of Nehemiah. The story of Nehemiah is about building a wall, rebuilding a wall that had lain in rubble for over a hundred years in Jerusalem. That's a lot of rubble gazing. But Nehemiah tells us that God does a surprising work and restores the wall. Now, think of it. If, if you have your calculator out, over a hundred years is, uh, well, at least how I wrote it, was 30-some thousand days. 36,500 is what I got. That's a lot of days to gaze at rubble, don't you think? The wall is broken down. And we are told in Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 15, that in, the wall was completely restored in 52 days. 36,052 days. That's a surprising work of God. But God has something else up his sovereign sleeves. God is not just about restoring a place, a wall, a city. He is about that. But he's also about restoring a people. And the text we're looking at this morning, we see God surprising a people with an unexpected visit. The surprising work of God, the surprising visits of God in the church history, if you've read church history, you know the history of the church, that there are times in the history of the church where God makes a surprising visit. They're often called revivals. I don't know if that makes you feel like, you know, revival, some southern preacher screaming revival. But revival or awakening might be another way where God does a new work in a people. And Nehemiah gives us a picture in the 6th century. It's an eyewitness account of Watergate. Here's where it takes place. It's an amazing place. Here's a map of ancient Jerusalem. You see the Watergate. This is not if you have some history of uh, Nixon's Watergate scandal. This is a, a Watergate revival, okay? And it's right at this section of the wall. This is where they gather. In time and space, God visits his people in a powerful way. So what happens when God visits a people? Well, what happens is there's not just a sprinkle, not just a shower of the Holy Spirit's outpouring. It is a microburst of extraordinary delight. And in this text this morning, in the story, Nehemiah opens our eyes to see this microburst of delight, of joy. And as we follow this story this morning, you will see a progression, a threefold progression. When God visits your life, when God visits your family, when God visits a people, a nation, there is this microburst of joy. And there is three realities that emerge, a rediscovery of truth, a joyful rediscovery of truth. But secondly, there is a joyful recommitment of faith. 
And all the text builds to the third reality, and that is a joyful reordering of our heart's loves. What we truly love changes. So let's dive in. That's the progression of the text this morning, a rediscovery of truth, a recommitment of faith, and a reordering of our loves. Now notice verses 2 and 3 of chapter 8. Let me read those again carefully, and then I'd like to unpack them just a bit with you. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, all who could understand what they heard, on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate. Now notice, from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and women and those who could understand, and the ears of the people were attentive to the book of the law. Now, if you want to enter into the imaginative world to span the 6th century B.C. to our world, what is going on here is really not a typical church service, right? It's not like a five-hour church service. It is like a five-hour tailgating party at the Chiefs. That's the picture. It's outdoors. I can imagine barbecuing going on, celebration. There's all these people. And Nehemiah goes out of his way in repetition in verses 2 and 3 to repeat a phrase. If you have your Bible open, you will notice in Nehemiah chapter 8, this phrase jumps out at us. Notice, all who could understand. Now, this suggests that when God visits His people, when God visits a congregation, He visits all generations. And this is important for us to grasp because at Christ's community, we are increasingly putting out the welcome mat for God across generations as we worship together, children, students, adults. We call this intergenerational ministry, and it's becoming more of a priority for us as a congregation. I'm really excited about this. Not only is it transforming, not only is it aligned with God's design, but it shows when God visits His people in a surprising way, He touches all generations with the truth of God's Word. Notice in the text, the word attentive ears. Do you see that? And what we see here is that God's people across generations are gathering, and they have a hunger to know truth. Now, let's remember, if you are a part of our discussion earlier, that the covenant people of God in the 6th century had faced a food famine. Remember, there was a lot of issues of uh, drought and famine, and they were hungry. But the greatest drought, the greatest famine we hear now was a spiritual famine. They weren't just physically hungry and dealing with drought and famine. They were spiritually hungry for truth. The greatest famine the human can experience is not one of food but of truth. So God's Word comes alive to them with a renewed sense of hunger. And notice they gather for five hours. <laughs> you know, I can think some of you thinking, ah, uh, it's Mother's Day. Uh, is this an excuse for Pastor Tom to go extra long? You know, like five hours. Well, I'm not going to go five hours, I assure you. But notice, it's not just reading the text. What makes it so alive and engaging is that the text is being explained. How many of us have a hard time understanding all the Bible says? Anybody? Right? I do. And so you have this beautiful picture of not only reading the Word of God, but then those who are trained in the Word of God opening the Word of God and helping us understand it with clarity, accuracy, and relevance in our own language and context. So notice verse 8. They say, they read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that people understood what they were reading. 
In other words, interspersed with reading of Holy Scripture was the teaching of Holy Scripture. We must not miss this. Since the founding of Christ's community, one of our core values and greatest commitments has been to open God's Word, to study God's Word, and to open it so that we have greater understanding of what it means. That involves understanding the original language, the culture, and teaching it as a team to help us understand it. That is part of the vocation of a pastor, and it's deeply embedded in who we are as a church family across our campuses. We are committed to expose God's Word, to teach God's Word, to take the world of the Bible and bring it to where we are today. One of our values that we have on the website, we say over and over, we believe the Bible reveals God's design for all of life. It is the key that unlocks human flourishing. It is at the heart of our mission. When God visits a people, when he does a surprising work, the word of God comes alive and transforms us. One of the surprising works of God in our nation's history was called the First Great Awakening. If you've studied the history of America and class at school or in college, you know that the first great awakening profoundly transformed a young nation. One of the people who had a front row seat in this awakening was Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards has been rightly said and described throughout history as the greatest intellect and the greatest biblical scholar this nation has ever seen. Jonathan Edwards describes what it was like when God visited a people in a surprising way. And he says, when God visits a people, when the Holy Spirit is poured out on a people, five things emerge. And you might want to write this down, at least for prayer or thinking about this. First of all, Jesus Christ is exalted. Christ is lifted up. Secondly, the kingdom of evil is attacked. In other words, injustice and evil are challenged in the world. Third, the scriptures are honored... And fourth, sound doctrine is taught. And fifth, a love for God and man is nourished. So you'll notice two out of the five center on rediscovering truth. Now notice also when the people hear God's word, they not only have joy, they weep. In other words, when held up to the mirror of their hearts, they see the hideousness of their sin and the holiness of God. And they see God's great plan for them, and God has not given up on them. If you remember in the history, God's covenant people this time were coming back from exile. They thought God had abandoned them. And maybe in your life, you look at your life and you think, God has abandoned me. I've done so many bad things. I've done all this. And what I want to say to you is that God's word gives you hope. The good news of the gospel is that nothing is so bad in your past that God cannot forgive and transform you. Yes, there's weeping of sin, but there's joy in God's salvation. And this is what they are experiencing. Notice the outpouring of joy. Do you see it? Notice verse 10. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine. We might like that idea. Um, And send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is set apart to the Lord. It's holy. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Do you get the picture? This is a time of celebration. It's sort of like taking the Super Bowl party and Thanksgiving all into one. That's the idea. There's amazing joy. Everyone's included. It's a party. It's a big party of joy. And you notice at the end of verse 10, 
that Nehemiah emphasizes a phrase. If you have your Bible open, and if you've been in the church a while, you might have heard this phrase, the joy of the Lord is your strength. You see that? But what does that mean? Easy to say that. But let me just press into that just a bit because it's so important in terms of the storyline of Nehemiah. When we hear the word strength, what do we usually think of? We think of someone who's uh, working out in the gym a lot. You know, they're all buff. They got a six-pack right here. They're strong. They're able to take on the world because of their physical strength. Now, that's a good thing, but the text here is not talking about that kind of strength. English, we struggle with this, but the Hebrew text has a very different thing in mind than just physical strength. What the text is saying, this word saying, is that the joy of the Lord is our security. It is our protection. It is our stronghold. Psalm 46.10 says that the Lord is our refuge and strength. That's the idea. The idea is that they're Weeping is centered because they have placed their security in the wrong things. And they're seeing that God is their refuge. You see, the danger would be to think now, because the wall is built, that their security is centered in the rebuilt wall. But God wants them to know that their security has never been, nor will be, a wall. It is God himself. See, where we place our security matters. Because True joy, that sense of well-being, that pervasive sense of well-being flows from having our security tethered to the right place. So where is your security tethered this morning? What do you look for to find a sense of well-being in your life? Maybe it's a boyfriend or girlfriend. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's a successful career. Maybe it's your retirement fund. Maybe it's the safe neighborhood you live in. See, all these things are good things, but they were never designed to bring you joy. They were never designed to be your security. Only God can do that. If where we place our security is out of whack, joy will be elusive and fleeting, particularly in difficult times. We've all had hard times in life, haven't we? Sometimes life goes south on us. What do we do then? This past week, our Leewood staff had a wonderful privilege of gathering around the Johnson family to pray for them. They're a precious family. Little Melina has faced great health issues and continues to, and we're praying for her as a congregation. And before we gathered around this family and laid hands on Melina and their family and prayed for God to deliver them, to give them strength, to bring healing to this precious little girl whose kidneys are not functioning and need God's healing, Jamie and Tamara said to all of us in a testimony of joy that God is their refuge and strength. Joy is not the absence of difficult circumstances. 
It's a sense of overwhelming well-being in the midst of that. No matter what we face. When God visits a people in an unusual way, there's a rediscovery of truth. There's also a recommitment of faith. Do you see this? In chapter 9, 1 through 3, they gather together. And notice it says, on the 24th day of the month, they gather. The people of Israel were assembled with fasting and sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and iniquities of their fathers. They stood up in their place and read from the book of the law for a quarter of a day. For another quarter, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. Do you notice how Nehemiah gives us a marker? 22 days have passed. It's been 22 days of a party. I mean, big party, y'all. But now the tone changes. As God visits them, there is an overwhelming sense of their own sin. They fast, they pray, they wear sackcloth, they put dirt on their heads. That's kind of strange for us. But those are external evidences of an internal heart change. And not only that, can you imagine they declare publicly their new commitment? It's in verse 38 of chapter 9. It says, because all of this, they made a firm covenant in writing. Wow. In other words, the people cry out when God visits them, we're all yours, God, we're all in. When God visits your life, when God visits your marriage, when God visits your relationship, when God visits your business, when God visits a congregation, when God visits a nation in a surprising way, there is an overwhelming sense of the goodness and holiness of God and an overwhelming sense of the hideousness of your sin and mine. One of the powerful pictures of this story is that the good news of the gospel is that Jesus has died for you and me. And that he finished his atoning work on the cross for your sin and mine. And when we embrace the goodness of the gospel, joy is unleashed. The hymn writer puts it so beautifully. When he says that Christ has regarded our helpless estate and shed his own blood for our soul. Surprising work of God. And when a surprising work of God comes into our life, it not only changes how we live and how we think, it changes what our hearts love. Jonathan Edwards describes this beautifully when he said, There was fresh wind and fresh fire of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit across the young nation, across congregations, across families. Can you imagine that? Communities. Jonathan Edwards says this, there's nothing significant ever changed the life of anyone when the heart was not deeply affected. He says, love is the fountain and chief of all other affections. So when God visits your life, when God does a surprising work in your life and mine, there is a rediscovery of truth and its power in our life. There is a recommitment of our life, of faith, and there's a reordering of what our hearts love. Look at chapter 10, verses 35 to 36. They say, We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of every fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Also to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle. As it is written in the law, the firstborn of our herds and our flocks. Now, do you notice something in this text? There is a refrain of two phrases, first fruits and the house of God. 
You might want to read more of chapter 10 this week. What's going on here? When God visits your life, when God visits your friendships, your relationships, when God visits a family, when God visits a congregation, when God visits a nation, there is an outpouring of joyful generosity in every dimension. The word first fruits here simply means in this agrarian context or agriculture context, it was the first crop, the first thing you harvested, you took to God as an offering. In our cultural context, it would simply be not giving God your leftovers of your paycheck, but the first part. That's the picture. But not only first fruits, notice the house of God language. There is generosity toward the house of God. There is a reordering of their loves and their pocketbooks and everything about them toward what God loves. Think about this. For a hundred years, the walls had been neglected. But also for over a hundred years, the place where they worshipped had been neglected. God cared about the walls. He cared about the people. And he cared about the house of worship. That that would be restored. And notice in chapter 10, verse 39... They commit themselves to the house of God. And there's a little phrase at the end of verse 39. We will not neglect the house of our God. Wow. When God visits a people, he not only changes the people, he changes the place and people where they worship. When a new love for Jesus is experienced, a new love for what he loves is experienced, which is his church, the house of God. This word neglect is kind of soft in English. You know, I can sort of neglect something. It's not that big a deal, right? I sort of neglect to work out yesterday. <laughs> That's not the idea. The Hebrew language grabs you by the heart. It is the idea of forsaking or abandoning something that's precious. Now, I think there are two kinds of people in the world. This is how I see the world. You might disagree with me. There are cat lovers, Lord bless you, and there are dog lovers. I'm a dog lover. And I have to tell you, my heart is ripped out when I hear of someone abandoning a dog to a city or to the country or kicking them out or leaving them to roam. Or when you hear about puppy mills and the neglect of dogs and not caring for them, I just come on glued. Or when we hear about the neglect of a precious child made in the image of God. How does God feel when his people neglect his house of where, he worship, where we worship him together? It breaks his heart. When God visits his people, it changes our heart. We, our, our hearts are changed. The affections of our heart change. The Apostle Paul leaves us no doubt what the house of God is. He writes to Pastor Timothy in the first century, 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15, that the house of God is the local church. He says, I hope to come to you soon, he writes to Timothy, but I am writing these things to you so that, you, so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, same language, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and buttress of truth. 
See, when God pays an unusual visit to a people, not only are their lives changed, but what they love changes. What does Jesus love? He loves lots of things, doesn't he? Like these precious children we saw this morning. Jesus loves his church. He calls her his bridegroom. And if we love Jesus, if Jesus comes to us in a powerful way, if the Holy Spirit is poured on our hearts, we are going to love what Jesus loves. To love Jesus rightly is to love his church passionately. The Holy Spirit is poured out. We love what Jesus loves. And we love his church. So the question is, what do we love? Right? This text takes us to the heart. What do we truly love? I asked that question to a one of the wonderful kids in our church, and I said, what, does it, what, do, what do we love at Christ's communion? You know what they said? Donut holes, <laughs> which are good things. But what do we love? See, our time, talent, and treasures reflect what we truly love, don't they? So what do we talk about? Not just on Sunday morning. What do we talk about during the week? What's on our lips? What's on our heart? How do we spend our time? What does our schedule say? What does our checkbook our debit card, our credit card, whatever, what does that say? They all reflect what we love. When God makes a surprising visit, when the Spirit of God is poured out on a people, our loves are reordered to love what Jesus loves and the way he loves it. Front and center is loving his church. So how do we neglect the church of God today? A couple thoughts that come to my mind. We can emotionally neglect the church, can't we? I know. Churches are messy. <laughs> Some of us have had bad experiences. Easy to be bitter and be distant from them. But to emotionally neglect the church is to neglect the church and dishonor Christ. We can prayerfully ne- neglect the church, right? We can just not pray for the church. We can physically ne- neglect the church and never or hardly ever show up except Easter or whatever. We can financially neglect the church by withholding tithes and offerings. This is what the text is teaching. And Malachi, which is a parallel text, Malachi says this. It's amazing. Only place I know in Scripture. When God visits the people, there's an outpouring of generosity. And you know what Malachi says? When people align their heart with God's heart, when they give as God designed them to give in generosity, it says the windows of heaven open. The Holy Spirit is poured out with joyful generosity. Amazing. My dear mom, who is with the Lord now, taught me much. And I have to tell you, this morning when I woke up, that was the first thing I thought about how much I miss her. Mother's Day for many of us is a mixed deal, isn't it? There were many things my precious mom taught me, but she taught me generosity. As a single mom with seven kids, she loved what Jesus loved. And she loved his church. And she had three envelopes. She taught us this. It was such good financial management, three envelopes. This is giving, this is spending, this is saving. Parents, what a great picture of teaching your children the importance of giving, spending, and saving. My son, Schaefer, when he was younger, and again, you may be younger this morning, you don't have a lot of money. That's okay. You can give your time. 
in generosity. My son Schaefer didn't have a lot of money at the time, and he tithed his time during the week by going to a retirement center and spending time with the elderly. When God visits a people, there's generosity and transformation. There is fresh fire and fresh wind. Nehemiah points us to Acts chapter 2. The pointers to Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit comes upon and bursts the church with fresh wind and fresh fire. Luke 2 uses that language. One of the greatest towering intellects of France was Blaise Pascal. Pascal died in 1662 and his body was prepared for burial and as they got his body ready, they noticed that there was this paper, this parchment sewn in his pocket. And this is what it said. The year of grace, 1654, Monday, 23 November, from about half past 10. In the evening until half past midnight, fire. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob. Not of philosophers and scholars, certainty, certainty, heart-filled joy and peace. God of Jesus Christ, God of Jesus Christ, joy, joy, joy. Tears of joy, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. When God visits the front porch of your heart, There is fresh wind and fresh fire. You may be here this morning and you came just because it's Mother's Day. I'm so glad you're here. (laughs) And maybe the last thing you thought about this morning as you got up that God's Spirit would come knocking at the door of your heart this morning. Maybe you have a lot of questions, doubts about the Christian faith, but you sense something wooing you. God is seeking you. The God is seeking you. And my challenge to you, wherever you are this morning, is will you unbolt the door of your heart of doubt or bitterness or fear? And will you just say to the Spirit of God, here's the welcome mat. Here's the front porch of my heart. Make yourself real to me. You may be here this morning and you've been a Christian for a long time, a follower of Jesus for a long time. Frankly, the last thing you expected this morning when you got up and came to church is that the Spirit of God would come knocking at your door. Maybe there's some secret sin you're not dealing with. Maybe you feel lifeless, joyless at your heart if you're honest. Maybe the affections of your heart are everywhere else but Jesus. Madame Guyon French mystic that I, I love her writings in the 19th century put it this way. This is worth the whole morning. She said, a will surrendered is not always a will abandoned. Is Christ Lord of your life? Is your will surrendered to him? Are you abandoned to him? Will you say to him, I'm all yours, I'm all in? Will you put the welcome mat outside the door of your heart this morning? Say, Lord, do a new work. Holy Spirit, do a new work in my life. What happens when God visits in an unusual way? There's a microburst of joy and transformation of an individual life, a marriage, friendships, congregation and a nation. 
This past week, we lost a wonderful friend to Christ's community. Philosopher and friend, Dallas Willard. And one of the things Dallas said to me several times when I was with him, he would say to me, Tom, the greatest mission field in America is the church. Now, our hearts can cry out with the cultural decline we're facing, and it's enormous. But the greatest need I want to challenge you with is for Jesus Christ and the power of the Spirit, a Holy Spirit invasion of an apathetic church in desperate need of revival. Almost a quarter of a century ago, when Christ's community was birthed with just two of us in a little apartment, We cried out for God to do a surprising work in and through us. Now, I don't want to be manipulative or presumptuous. God only knows. But I do believe we can put the welcome mat out in your heart and mind and in our congregation and say, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, do a new work. Visit us. Lord, visit me. Risen Lord, Holy Spirit, visit me. Visit us. Awaken us with fresh wind and fresh fire. Do a new work for your glory. Fall afresh on us. In Jesus.